what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. Thank you to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Spiritless supports the conscientious cocktailer who wants to live fully but drink differently. Their signature Kentucky 74 is a distilled non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. It's zero alcohol zero guilt, and just 15 calories per serving. Whether you go completely spiritless or go halfsies with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail, you can get your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For, the podcast, where we meet the world's most fascinating and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Cardinal Blaise Supich. All of us need an examination of conscience about our prejudices. That's why I think I wanted to challenge particularly high school kids. I asked our principals, I got them together early on at the time of the George Floyd murder, and said, why don't we come up with a plan on what we're going to do about this, how we're going to talk to our kids about this. I said, I want you uh, to tell the other kids that what you have learned in school about racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism. They have to take it home and they have to be willing to challenge it whenever they hear jokes or slights about people because of their race. Mm-hmm. They have to have the courage to challenge their parents if they hear it. Mm-hmm. And they have to, because that's where it's learned. It's learned in the home. Mm-hmm. And, and so you can take some responsibility or you can be an agent for change. Cardinal Blaise Supic is originally from Nebraska, one of nine kids in a Croatian family. His story of becoming a priest and dedicating his life to service is a fascinating one. He was chosen by Pope Francis to lead the Archdiocese of Chicago in 2014 and has served in that role since then. In the past year, he has faced one of the toughest years of his tenure with a global pandemic, shuttering churches and sending the flock to find mass on their computer screen. It was an honor to sit down and break bread with the Cardinal. No topic was off the table, and my goal was for listeners to get to know him a little bit better. And what better place to do that than his favorite restaurant, Tavern on Rush. Of all the restaurants in Chicago, why Tavern on Rush? Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, for two reasons. First of all, as I say with any business, it's always three words are important, location, location, location. So this is only about two or three minutes from my office. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the other reason is the food is good. (laughs) Tavern on Rush is a quintessential Chicago restaurant located on Rush Street, right across from another iconic restaurant, Gibson Steakhouse. Tavern on Rush is classic American fare and has an outdoor patio with some of the best people watching in the city. We have probably the, the most unique corner of our city. Obviously, uh, you, you have our place, you have Gibson's across the street, who's Carmine's next door. These are iconic uh, Chicago these are restaurants. All, right. I've always said that if we're slow, the rest of the city is completely dead. Because <laughs> This so, is sort of like a welcome to Chicago right, corner. Right. It is one of 16 restaurants owned by legendary Chicago restaurateur Phil Stefani. So my first restaurant was uh, Stefani's 
on Fullerton and Southport by DePaul University. The year was 1980. 41 years later, I'm still doing it. So, <laughs> so your, your original business was travel. My original business was travel. And that's where, because of travel, I was going back and forth to Italy on a regular basis. You know, my parents both raised and born in Italy. So because of travel, I had the opportunity to go back and forth. And what I realized was that what was considered Italian here, food, was not really Italian in Italy. Mm. <laughs> when, the, when, the, when the people came across the Atlantic, they kind of lost a little bit in translation. Yeah. So yeah. it must have been really important to you to kind of remind Americans what real Italian food tastes yes. like. And I still do that to this day. Mm. You know, uh, and this is one thing I used to say. It was a famous line I would always tell travelers who came, you know, by me to book a trip, no matter where they went in the world, I would always say, respect the customs of that country. Who to say is that we're right and they're wrong, mm. right? For instance, in Italy, everything closes at one o'clock and people go to have lunch and they go with their families and so forth. And obviously tourists are upset because the stores are all closed, but, they don't care, you know, they feel that this is their time. In Italy's kids get out of school at one o'clock and then at 1.30 they all sit at the table and they all have lunch together, which is a very important part of uh, their custom, their, their, their upbringings. The beauty of taking a moment to have a meal every day with their family cannot be underscored. It's huge, huge. And I say it's huge because it's really the time that you sit at a table, and because in Italy, lunches are not just five minutes, you're sitting there for a while, you're conversing, you get to look into your child's eyes and you see if there are problems. What does it mean to you personally that Archbishop Blaise Supich chose this as his favorite spot? Ah, it's a great honor. And our Archbishop, our Cardinal, does support our industry. He's been very proactive also with vaccinations and so forth, prom promoting us and so forth. I'm of the same religion, so when you got the top guy, <laughs> everybody wants to have the top guy. So, I, yes, I am. I mean, he could have so, picked anywhere in Chicago. He, that's, that's quite an honor. With open arms. It's exciting that he picked us, yes. Valuing the importance of a family meal is something that Phil Stefani and Cardinal Blaise Supich have in common. That and their love of great Italian food. I'll take the rigatoni. Phil will be happy because he thought you might order something Italian. All right. Yes. Something to drink for you, sir? Do you have a uh, Perrier or a, a San... A Pellegrino. Pellegrino. Give me a Pellegrino. San Pellegrino, yeah. Thank you very much. Cardinal Supic orders the rigatoni bolognese and offers a prayer to begin our meal. Father, we're so grateful for uh, another beautiful day that... Uh, comes in this springtime where you, we have a sense of hope about our lives. Mm -hmm. And especially uh, now as we try our best uh, as a nation, as a world, to turn the corner on the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Continue to be with us every step of the way uh, and bless the food that uh, we partake in today. It is a reminder that you never cease to nourish us in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And let us always remember those who go hungry this day, mm -hmm. uh, never leaving them behind. Uh, but rather being a blessing to them as you are to us. We ask this in faith through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Cardinal Supich has lived all over the country, from South Dakota to Spokane. He began his role as Archbishop of Chicago in 2014, and Tavern on Rush quickly became a local favorite of his. I've known Phil really from the first year that I was here, and it's a place where I feel very comfortable, and I've, I've had... Uh, a number of meals. In fact, in this very room, when I turned 72 years ago, my eight brothers and sisters surprised me and uh, showed up here in Chicago in this room. And Phil and his wife invited me to come to have dinner for my birthday. And I walk in and there they are. Oh, what an amazing event. It really was. And they were, they were particularly pleased with themselves that they pulled it off. <laughs> They, they kept it a surprise. Well, they, they, what they had to do is compromise my, uh, my pre-secretary. And, of course, I threatened to fire him right there. <laughs> <laughs> they did it. Well, that's interesting. So you are one of eight children? One, or of, one nine. of One of nine children. So I have eight siblings. I have uh, three brothers and five sisters. So tell me about how you grew up. 
where you grew up and how that shaped you. Well, I grew up in an immigrant home in the sense of my grandparents being immigrants. And uh, so everybody... Immigrants uh, from? Croatia. All four ah. of them came from Croatia mm-hmm. before World War One and a little after. And uh, they all came to Omaha, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And the draw was uh, the unskilled labor and the packing houses. In fact, I always thought that a foreign language is talking English with an accent. Because <laughs> everybody that I knew who was older spoke uh, spoke with an accent. My dad was in the Second World War. He came back. Um, I, my uh, parents met uh, at church, of all places. They went to the same high school, but they were a year apart. And it was my, my aunts on my father's side who kind of set this up, ambushed my dad when he was home on leave after going to basic training uh, after Pearl Harbor uh, in the Navy, and uh, told him that he should go to St. Anne's Novena in July of 1942. And uh, little did he know that they were setting up this uh, meeting with, with his future wife, Mary, Mary Mahan was her name. And uh, my mom said that uh, the girls would always go to the novenas and under their breath saying the prayers, they would say, uh, Anne, Anne, find me a man. <laughs> That's an important prayer. <laughs> yes, it is. So they met uh, and dated for a few weeks and um, kept it in correspondence. Dad was never home on leave. But then when he came back uh, in 45, after the war had ended, they were married in February of uh, 1946. And uh, my brother was born that December, just uh, nine months later. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of us came along. I'm the third of nine. I have two older brothers. Wow. As my brother Bob said, you know, there are three boys right in a row. And he says the boys were ahead three to nothing and the girls won five to four in the ninth. (laughs) I love it. The last one was a girl. Oh, I love it. So, you know, when you look back, here you are, uh, this Croatian family with nine children, I'm assuming extremely Catholic. If you had to pinpoint the overarching values and ideals that your parents tried to instill in you, what were a couple that really you remember? I would say um, you have to be responsible for your own life Mm -hmm. and you have to take responsibility for your life, Mm -hmm. but you also have to make sure that uh, you work together as a family. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for instance, uh, my dad had three jobs in supporting all the kids. He was, he carried mail, he was a letter carrier. So he'd get up early, five in the morning, go to work, come home uh, maybe about one o'clock in the afternoon, have lunch with my mom, and then come up to the school where we were, and he was part-time janitor. So the boys stayed back and helped him. And then he would come home, have, we'd have supper together, and then he'd go out some nights and bartend uh, for extra money. Wow. And then get up the next morning at 5.30 again to go to work. So incredibly hardworking. Hardworking. The people. hard work was instilled in you. When you looked at, you know, in high school and college, you know, who you wanted to be, was it always a priest or was it something else? Well, my brother was in the seminary. Uh, okay. I was going to the seminary, an older brother. So, uh, you know, some of them came to me and said, you know, you should think about it. And I said, well, it's like that coupon, one per family, you know, I thought. <laughs> they said, no, it doesn't work that way. But, uh, no, I was in school leadership. I was president of my student council, 1,200 kids in the school. I, I was really thinking I got some scholarships. I was going to school to study law. I wanted to study law. But then uh, more and more I thought about it. I said, okay, I'll give it a try. I could study philosophy, which was a good preparation for both. And I really fell in love with philosophy. I really liked it. It was intrigued my mind. And then when I became a senior, I I graduated from the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul. It was just in the College of St. Thomas. A decision had to be made. Are you going to go ahead and study uh, theological school? So I said, yes, I try. And then they decided to send me to Rome. So I went to Rome for four years from 71 to 75. Came home once, uh, traveled all over Europe, Africa, the Middle East. And literally $5 a day when you could do that in the 70s. Yeah. And worked in Africa for a summer, thinking maybe I would do, wanted to do missionary work. I was in Zambia for the summer of 74. Uh, I listened on the BBC to the resignation of uh, Richard Nixon. So I remember all of those things quite vividly about what took place. Amazing. This is the crab cake salad? This is the yeah. crab cake salad. Wow. That's all honey mustard. Yeah, yeah. They, you, you won't go hungry here. <laughs> wow, this is oh, incredible. Oh, thank you. Yes. So you really had quite the world adventure. This, this I did. Car- it, it, it For is a kid not who a grew career. up in Nebraska, yeah. you know, and uh, I think the first time I flew on an airplane was when I flew to New York to take the ship over to uh, Rome. It was a 10-day 
trip. We could take all of our belongings. I remember uh, for 10 days, we could eat, you know, to our heart's delight as you can on these big ships. It was Leonardo da Vinci and take all of your belongings in a big trunk. And it was four hundred forty dollars. Wow! Wow! <laughs> so, yeah. and that's where he met the. I met the other guys. There were fifty of us on the, on the boat uh, going over to Rome. We stopped in, uh, Palma, Mallorca, Malta, Lisbon, uh, Genova, mm-hmm. uh, and finally in Naples. Mm-hmm. So it was quite an adventure for me. I always feel like the the role of a parish priest is so multidimensional and requires you to kind of fire on all cylinders from a heart and a head perspective. It is a job that um, you're constantly evolving and learning. Talk to me about your transition from a priest into an archbishop and all that went with that and how difficult that was. Well, I think uh, one thing, and you touch on it very nicely, just to nuance a little bit, a priest uh, on a day-to-day basis has to deal with the um, emotional roller coaster of maybe doing a funeral and then a baptism or a wedding all on the same day, mm. uh, visiting hospitals where somebody's dying. They have to be able to recalibrate mm-hmm. what they're feeling, but to be present at people at the same time. Right. And that really, that's, that's a major adjustment in becoming a priest, mm-hmm. a parish priest. Mm-hmm. But becoming a bishop, I had quite a unusual record of assignments. I was in Omaha, my first assignment, 1975, for three years. With a man who worked with Father Flanagan, mm-hmm. who founded Boys Town, mm-hmm. you know the story. Yep. Yep. I really learned from him, and I had two other priests where there were four of us in the house. So I learned a great deal. Then I was sent away to uh, do some graduate work in the area of sacramental theology and liturgy at Catholic U in Washington. I came back in um, 1979, uh, December. In March of 80, I was invited to join the staff at the papal delegation in Washington at the Apostolic Nunciatur. Mm. So I was there for almost seven years. Mm. Uh, came back, was a pastor of a parish, large parish with a school in Omaha, Bellevue, Nebraska, next mm-hmm. to the Air Force Base. Was there for just about two and a half years, and then was asked to become the head of a seminary in Columbus, Ohio, which is run by the Vatican, mm-hmm. Josephinum it's called. In 1997, I took another parish, a big parish, St. Robert's in the west side of Omaha. 600 kids in the school, big western parish. Uh, Loved it, but a year to the date that I moved in there, I was called by the papal nuncio and asked uh, if I would accept being the bishop of Rapid City, South Dakota. Mm -hmm. This was in 1998. I was um, 49 years old. And what do you think it was about you that you were not only called to do that, but chosen to do that? Is it because of all the leadership positions you'd had along the way? Could be. Of course, Rapid City is not too far from Omaha. Mm-hmm. They're looking for somebody. Uh, they wanted somebody young because the size of the diocese is really the same size as Ireland. Oh. It's 43,000 square miles. Wow. Yeah. And five Indian reservations. One third of the Catholics there were Native Americans. So they needed somebody who could understand maybe plurality and diversity in society who had some energy because of the youthfulness. And I loved it, I was there for 12 years. It was it was a beautiful experience for me. And then I was asked by, so I was appointed by John Paul II there, and then Benedict was Pope in 2010 and asked me to go to Spokane, Washington. They had just come out of a bankruptcy that uh, turned sour on them because mm-hmm. it, was, um, it was arranged in such a way that there still was a liability that wasn't closed off. So I was there for four years and worked hard at trying to bring healing to that community. And then out of the blue in 2014, I was in Munich. I was a chair of a, a committee to help Eastern Europe. And uh, the nuncio called me and said, uh, Pope Francis has appointed you to Chicago, which was out of the blue and stunning to me. Mm. I would say the transition in all of those moments really was uh, not too difficult because Every place I went, I had the sense that people wanted me to succeed there, mm. that they, they really were pulling for uh, a way forward in which the church could take the next step in its history. And uh, I, that never has never left me. You know, I, I feel that here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. In 2013, I had the honor of covering the papal conclave for CBS here in Chicago. Oh, did you? And, huh? Yes. It was such an incredible process you know, how uh, a pope comes to be. You were right in the midst of it all. What was it like for you personally to be a part of such a, 
I don't want to say mysterious process, but it is a mystery, obviously, to the general public. You know, of course, I was in Spokane during that at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, it was interesting. I got an email from a priest, in fact, from Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, who I've known for a number of years, and he had we had some mutual friends, and he sent me an email and said, "Listen, we got into a pool here this morning. This was on March 13th, 2013. We have a pool here about who's going to be the next pope. Would you like to get into it?" <laughs> So I mean, this is this is go, go, goes from the mysterious to the mundane, doesn't it? <laughs> Very quickly. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's something you would so, never think would happen. So anyway, I said, "Give me your list," and he uh-huh. gave me the list, and he said, "Who had took what?" I said, "You're missing somebody. You're missing Bergoglio." And he Pope said, Francis, "Well, he yeah. says too old and a Jesuit." <laughs> I said, "Put my name down." Ah. Two two hours later, he was on the balcony. Yeah. Wow. But I, 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 and what was it about him I that you thought? Him. Well, I followed him um, and, um, and thought that he had the ability to uh, not only unite the church, but it was time for someone uh, from the new world mm. to be there. And uh, so I, it was more of an aspiration than anything else. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any insight. Nobody, nobody texted me from in the Sistine Chapel to give me a heads up. Right. Uh, but it was just, it just, um, it was an idea uh, that came to mind. And I was just surprised he wasn't on the list, so I put him on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has been a, a breath of fresh air for certain for the Catholic Church. What do you think about his vision for where he wants to take the Catholic Church? I think it's the word, one word that he uses quite often, synodality. And synodality really comes from the cognates um, in, in Greek of walking together. Hmm. He wants to make sure that, as he calls it, uh, if we're going to have a pyramid structure in the organization of the church, we invert it so that um, everyone is at the top. Mm. And those who are at the, the apex are there to serve everybody. Wow. And so that we have to make sure that we look for a way in which we're gonna to listen to the voices of everybody. It's not a democracy, but it's, an, it's a fundamental belief that the Holy Spirit is not in some way uh, just uh, limited to people who are in the hierarchy who are ordained, but all of us are gifted with that. And we need to listen to one another as he said, you know, a shepherd has three positions. You're in front of the sheep to lead and to protect them from any danger. You're in the middle in order to know who they are and they know who you are. Huh? And that you have the smell of the sheep on you, as he calls it. And the other position is behind them, not just to prod him necessarily, but because you believe that they know how to sniff out fresh waters that you would otherwise miss. Mm. It's a wonderful image. Beautiful. I'd like to talk a little bit about the pandemic because, my gosh, what a year we've had. I always think that really difficult times have the opportunity to bring people closer to faith. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, how has the pandemic been for this archdiocese? both difficulties and silver linings? Well, it was difficult because we're community-based faith. We come together and are nourished by each other's presence. And that was cut off. So what I did was I started right away, talked to ABC, in fact, and see if they would uh, give us some time. So every Sunday for more than a year now, I've had the Sunday Mass at 9.30. But what's that like for you? That must have been so strange. You've never done virtual mass, yeah, no. right? What was that like? And, and do you think, did you feel like you were missing the connection or doing the best in this situation? Well, the first, one of the first weeks that I did it, I asked them to turn the camera around to the empty church. Mm. And I said, I'm looking at the empty church here, but I also see all of you mm. and look for the day in which we can all be back together. And that's, that's really what we have to keep our focus on. I mean, also to make sure that you uh, you realize that uh, you've got it. You've got one take, you know, in the homily. <laughs> I, I decided I was not going to write out my homilies. I was going to give them extemporaneously because I feel like can look in the camera directly to people. Yes. And they they allow me to be in their homes, and that seems to have worked. And I always try to bring a story. I want people to mull over, you know, that gospel text by thinking of that story throughout the week. Mm-hmm. During the pandemic, Chicago Catholic schools were made the decision to reopen and have kids go to school to the cheers of parents. Um, it, but it was a bit controversial because CPS was not doing that. Yeah. Can you talk about that decision and mm-hmm. why it was important to do what you did? Well, first of all, I would say 
in March, uh, and in fact, it was March 13 again, mm -hmm. the, the anniversary of the Pope's election, right. that we closed down everything. We were the first to close down even before the state did mm -hmm. because we could see what was happening. At that point, I talked to the mayor and um, she was hesitant about closing the schools because they had been on a strike right. earlier in the fall. I remember. And she was afraid that these kids were going to miss out, and I was sympathetic to that. Mm -hmm. But I said, you know, I think you're going to have to close eventually. So she did. Then in the summer, we talked over the summer. I said, you know, we're probably going to open. She said, I understand that. I would like us to open, but I can't because the teachers' unions right now are right. against it. So I said, we'll keep you posted. I said, maybe what we can be is the canary in the coal mine for you <laughs> so that we can, we're going to track people. We're, we're going to shut down cohorts, not a host school. We're going to find out where any contagion is and, and we'll try to control it. And we did. We kept our schools open. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some outbreaks. We closed down a classroom cohort rather than the host school. Sometimes we closed a host school if there was an infection but rarely, mm -hmm. and um, we made sure that people were taken care of and our teachers stuck with us. Mm -hmm. Our kids learned, you know. There is a sense that they also were able to deal with the pandemic in a better way because they didn't all get cabin fever. <laughs> uh, I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old, mm -hmm. all boys. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I've experienced cabin fever for the past year. Well, the thing too with the schools and the public schools and so the mayor was very concerned that there were a lot of families that didn't have more than one computer at home right. if they had more than one kid. Right. And and so the, the infrastructure wasn't there for it. And she deeply cared about the educational um, um, performance of kids. And I think that really motivated her to look for a way. But the percentage of kids who had really no education this year is quite high. It really is. And it, it, it it's very sad. It's a problem. Some kids are going to miss out. Who, kids are already disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was sympathetic to, to the challenges that she had and tried in, in every way possible to be supportive of her and shared information about what we were doing. Mm -hmm. I'll have more in my conversation with Cardinal Supich, but first, thank you to our sponsors. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American national companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Now back to our conversation. I thought it was really interesting that you are incorporating George Floyd and all the fallout into the curriculum mm -hmm. for um, Catholic schools. Yeah. What role do you think Catholics have and Christians in general in bringing a more loving and tolerant world? Well, I think, first of all, we need all of us need an examination of conscience about our prejudices. That's why I think... I wanted to challenge particularly high school kids. I asked our principals, I got them together early on at the time of the George Floyd murder and said, why don't we come up with a plan on what we're gonna do about this? How we're gonna to talk to our kids about this? And so they worked with a lot of their students and I got a report, I had a Zoom call with all of them, with the, with the kids, the leadership. And they told me about some of the things they were doing. And then I, 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 re I recommended two things to them. I said, I want you uh, to tell the other kids that what you have learned in school about racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, 
they have to take it home and they have to be willing to challenge it whenever they hear jokes or slights about people because of their race. Mm -hmm. They have to have the courage to challenge their parents if they hear it. Mm -hmm. And they have to, because that's where it's learned. It's learned in the home. Mm -hmm. and, and so you can take some responsibility or you can be an agent for change. The second thing I said is make sure that you understand that bigotry has a ripple effect across history and across nations. I said, and the best way to do it is I, I would like you to uh, go to the Holocaust Museum, get, get some kids to go to that and talk about that. There are survivors still in the area. And I said to them, you, you need to realize what the impact is in history of bigotry and prejudice when you see what happened at the Holocaust. Right. You, have, you have to do that. Mm -hmm. There are people of all faiths and no faith who feel deeply about this. And I think that that's, those are points of connections that we can have with people to unite the human family. The church should not be some sort of social enclave, but rather we should be a, a catalyst for change. We should, as the Holy Father calls us, we should be a field hospital in the world, mm -hmm. not one uh, in which people bang on the door and try to get in and then we refuse. Right. And, and I, th I think that that's what he's bringing, uh, that whole vision of the church in a different light that, that I'm, I've always tried to do as a priest. People say, well, you know, you really like uh, Pope Francis. I said, you know, but I liked his agenda before he was Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. I, I, this is the way I've always tried to be a priest. Mm -hmm. And many other people did too, coming out of the Second Vatican Council. So uh, he's, only, he's only realizing some of the aspirations I've always had. Even one generation or two generations prior, the immigrant pockets of whether they're Irish or Italian or Croatian, really were necessary for so many reasons. They were the glue that kept communities together. The Catholic faith was a part of that glue. And, and now our world is changing so much that people are living in a much more independent way, right? They're, they're, they're not living in these pockets of community. And I'm wondering what effect that has, specifically in Chicago, but all over, of the faith in growing the flock. Well, you, you've hit on a very important point. Uh, social mobility has cut across all of that social cohesions that we we could we could rely on in the church. Right. Um, parents don't see their children or grandchildren because they live in different places. We have churches in Chicago here every three blocks and some quarters of, of the city, which we don't need anymore. Mm -hmm. And so when we, we're doing a process now called Renew My Church, in which we're trying to find out what should the footprint of the archdiocese be, you know? We had 500 churches at one time, over 500 churches here in Chicago. Uh, and right now we're trying to group people together to talk about how community life can be sustained and do mission, not maintenance. Mm -hmm. Because we have all of these places that have deferred maintenance that are just taking all of the resources instead of using it for mission in order to just keep up buildings. Mm -hmm. So what do we need to do in order to to, to have this happen. So, I mean, it's, it's church consolidation in essence, right? Yeah, but, but it's also building a new reality. Mm. We've identified various markers mm -hmm. in order to have a community that is uh, vibrant, vital, and sustainable long-term. And so there are three uh, goals. One is um, how do we make disciples in, in, in an environment right now that's sometimes hostile to religion mm -hmm. or maybe indifferent? How do we build community uh, so that people do find support? But also, how do we witness in the world? How do we, how do we make a difference in the world? Mm -hmm. So um, there, there are ways in which we can resource parishes to kind of up their game, mm -hmm. the way they do welcoming of people, the way they do celebrate liturgy and sacraments, uh, the way they care for those who are in the neighborhood, even if they're not Catholic, with our Catholic Charities arm for social services. So in, in bringing people together, we're trying not just deal with a restructuring, but we're trying to in some way uh, renew the faith life of the church and the way the church operates in this moment. It's a long process. It's You, you can't satisfy yourself by just uh, closing places and keeping other and consolidating notes. That's not enough. Right. You've got to build a new reality. Yeah. When you look at your time in this role as the Archbishop, what has been the most challenging part of it all? I would say getting people mm -hmm. to look at reality mm -hmm. uh, about the real situation that, that we're in. That they cannot ignore the fact that their children and grandchildren are not practicing the faith that they used to. 
they can't ignore the fact that there's the graying of the church when they look on Sunday Mass, that we have more funerals and baptisms, that we have fewer vocations to the priesthood. They have, they, they have to be willing to die in some way to a, a mythology about the church that is based on past history of where the church was, because it's not there anymore. But to do it in a way not to depress his people, but to say, okay, we're, we're where's the hope? Where's the hope? And we are a community that says when we die, something rises new. Mm. Can, how do we do that? Mm. How do we do that? And and I think that that has been for I, it's been difficult with my priest, mm-hmm. been difficult with people who are tied to a parish that their grandparents built. Sure, change um, is hard. I, I always tell the joke of how many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? How many? Change. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that, that's, uh, yeah, you've kind of touched on, I imagine seeing it firsthand and living it and trying to inspire people to change when the Catholic faith is steeped in such tradition, mm-hmm. history, uh, it's got to be extraordinarily difficult. What do you do yeah. to move the needle? Well, I, I think you have to make sure that you very clearly hone your message. I think that's very important that you give a vision that is um, believable and and that you articulate it well. But then you have to keep at it. When people have pushback or they challenge it or they become angry, you have to be patient and say, okay, now look at it this way. This is how what we have to do. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid here. We can move this, but if we're not gonna go ahead if we don't deal with the real situation that we have. Mm-hmm. And people, people do come around, they're reasonable, they see that. I make the analogy themselves uh, about their own, their own uh, families. I said, you know, maybe you had a big house with a number of kids or grandchildren and, and things have changed and you downsize, but you're still a family. You, you still look for another way in which you can be family. Mm-hmm. You're, you're distant from people. Mm-hmm. Uh, as in the, uh, you didn't have the kind of social contacts that you did, but you, you look for another way to do this, mm-hmm. uh, to keep the family together. Well, if you, if you didn't adjust uh, and if you insisted that everybody come home every every week for Sunday dinner, like you did in the past, or you keep your big house and you don't have any more money to pay for the upkeep, uh, and you didn't take care of your health itself and thought you were going to be young forever, it wouldn't last. It won't last. And I said, it's the same with the church. When you look at everything that you have done throughout your time of service, whether it's a parish priest, whether it's all of the leadership positions you've had prior to being an archbishop, what part of this role and this job is most uniquely you? I get people, and I'm not kidding so much. I tell them I do the same two things every day. I get up in the morning and I find out what I'm supposed to do. And then I find somebody to do it. (laughs) I think that's what I'm good at. Mm. I have- Delegation. Getting the right talent. Not only getting people on the bus, but getting them in the right seats in the bus. Mm. There was a, a woman, very capable woman, who came in to do some consulting work for us uh, from McKinsey. She was quite good. She was growing into other positions as well during a time of sabbatical. And at one point, I just said to my finance committee and others, I need a COO. I need, I need somebody who's going to run this operation because this is not my bailiwick, but I need somebody who, who can work together as a team with me. Mm-hmm. So I hired her, and she's been the CEO of COO of the of the archdiocese, and she really is uh, in charge on the day to day operation. She's the one who also attracted talent for building the new reality. Young Catholics who are uh, quite enthusiastic about making the, ch- the future of the church possible mm-hmm. and building it. And then I think I I think the other is um, making sure I get a lot of lay advisors that I talk to on a daily basis who who know. Uh, what has to be done from real estate to um, uh, uh, financial investment to uh, dealing with legal issues that the archdiocese has to do. You mentioned that one of your strengths is finding the right seat on the bus for certain people and really identifying strengths. When you look at the, the church, how do you identify perhaps leaders or priests that aren't of that ilk? And how do you I don't want to say weed them out, but how do you determine who's best for the positions? 
Well, we have to have conversations with guys. Um, some guys have never been challenged to a new vision because they have um, easily imitated how they saw others. When they're given uh, a different vision, uh, given an opportunity to really up their game. And, and I, I, I do have an office now that I established for the professional and pastoral development of priests. We didn't have that before. How are we gonna invest in our personnel? It used mm. to be that a guy was ordained and then you coast along and then right. when your number came up because of your years of ordination, you'd get a parish. Right. It's not happening anymore. Mm. So we it's a more stringent look at who is fit for leading a parish. Right, but also give them the capacity to move into being fit. I think that 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 has to be that has to happen too. You really do have to have uh, a personnel policy where you develop people, and and not just treat them like cheap labor, right? Uh, or just filling a hole, right? But you have to give them a sabbatical. You have to give them an opportunity. You have to do in service for people. We worked out um, for a number of years ago now with the uh, uh, Kellogg School of Business mm -hmm. for a way mm -hmm. in which leadership can be taught to our priests. Uh, that is is appropriate for being a pastor of a parish. Sally Blount, who is a dean of school, helped us. In fact, I just hired her away from Kellogg to be the CEO of Catholic Charities here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, she's one that I spotted. Mm -hmm. I said, we, this is the person we need mm -hmm. here for this. Huh? And so that kind of investment in your personnel is key. And if guys don't want to respond, that's fine. But then, of course, we're going to make sure that our parishes have the leadership that they need. What is your big vision for the Archdiocese? What would you like to see happen in the next one to five years? I would say um, to build capacity of our parishes to really proclaim the gospel. I mean, it's that simple. How, how, do, we, how do I get them to the next stage so that we can chart the new direction that we're not gonna just coast along, but that we look for a way in which we're going to grab hold of the future uh, with excitement, uh, daunted, no doubt, by the challenges that are there, but not paralyzed. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that is what my, my hope is. How do I move the, the diocese to that next stage where we're able to have the capacity uh, not just to coast at a different level, but the capacity to always grow, to be ever learning, to, to marching forward? How do I instill in them that it's not about the end of a destination, but that journey uh, that it keeps going? I want to build capacity. That's what I want to do. How have you had to challenge yourself and grow? And what do you, when you look back, what did you not know getting into this position that you have had to experience to learn? Well, first of all, I'm glad I didn't know it because I probably would have panicked <laughs> about the enormity of the task before me. The things that uh, maybe I'm was surprised about as I look back on it that that, that was there would be that there are so many people who do identify as Catholics culturally, and yet are hesitant to take responsibility for the future, especially for their kids. You know, there are a lot of grandparents who are saying to me, they're wondering if they're gonna be the last Catholic in their family. And, and I think that without putting a guilt trip on people or making it accusatory, to really just say to people, do you realize what's gonna happen if your generation doesn't step forward. Mm -hmm. I say that to young people about, you know, vocations of priesthood and religious life. You know, those places are going to be empty. Mm -hmm. um, there was a priest- Is that a big fear of yours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, there was a priest a number of years ago who, re, when he retired, he sat down before he left, he took his shoes off and he put them on a table next to the altar. And he began to walk out. People looked at him, he says, who's gonna fill these shoes? I mean, that's, that's the question, huh? How do we challenge people, young people, the next generation, in such a way that uh, doesn't come across as accusatory, but a real challenge uh, about, you know, it's the same thing with, with this country, democracy. Mm -hmm. We're finding that young people today are turned off by politics and they don't want to get involved in it because it's pretty messy. Mm -hmm. The police are having difficulty recruit people. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that the, the next generation can really afford to sit back and say, no, not me, I'm not involved here. Right. Uh, same with the church. These institutions are important. Mm -hmm. And we, we know that institutions fail, that they make mistakes, that they're sinful, that uh, they're corrupt sometimes. But don't walk away from it. Look for a way in which you can see how coming together 
in an institutional framework is necessary for your future and your kids' future. So much of the current climate is a move towards secularization, and it is a move towards walking away from mm -hmm. religion. And so the question is, how do you rally people to come back and to reaffirm their faith in the face of a lot of it? Mm -hmm. And I don't know the answer to that. And what would you say to that? Well, we, we believe that we do this with the hope of making disciples. We believe there have to be soft entry points. Rather than saying to somebody, you should come to church with me. You say to them, listen, we're going to help some people who are having a tough time with, uh, with, and we're going to be at a food pantry handing out food or doing this. We have Catholic Charities that does a lot. There's a generosity in young people. They want to step forward and do that. So to begin to, to have plant the seeds of co-responsibility and networking within a community, I think is a soft entry point that we can use. And then how, how do you do that in a sustained way so that it's not just episodic, so that it really becomes a part of your identity and your life? Well, then you talk, begin to talk about community and bonds which you have each other. And if that's the case, well, every community needs to celebrate. How are you gonna do that? Huh? So you have to build on it, accompany people, but you have to start with some soft entry points. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, and I think you've hit the nail on the head because I think the new generation, what they care most about is doing good and no. having an impact. And there's the hope. And no. there's the power of the moment. Because yeah. there, it is a, a sense, you start with the Black Lives Matter movement where people of all races came out because of a sense of, of true fairness and justice and wanting to make their voice heard and wanting to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that's right. That's what religion is about or should be in the best form. It should be. It, it should, should be. be. It should be. How are we going to tap in and nurture that? aspiration of unselfishness, huh? of wanting to make sure that we are our brother's keeper. Yes. In 2015, Pope Francis called for all people of the world to take swift and global action to care for the earth and stop climate change yep. in his second encyclical. What do you think of the environmentalist movement within the Catholic Church, and how do you see the Church's role? We have to be a convener of people to, first of all, to be educated about the issue. Mm -hmm. We have an opportunity, given our footprint in the world of education, to do that. We also are a large real estate holder in this country. Mm -hmm. Think of the universities, hospitals, parishes, mm -hmm. chancery offices, all the rest of it. So how are we going to modify our plants uh, in order to add to the solution going forward? I wish our conference would be more focused on that. I think that, that, that that's an important contribution we can make. I, I, I go to Europe once, once a month. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have meetings. And I uh, meet with a lot of European people, especially young people. I can tell you that even those who are not practicing any religious tradition, that Pope Francis is the most admired man uh, among young people uh, because of his stance. Uh, the way that he is bringing people together on this question, because he really, he really is serious about the fact that this common home of ours is in great jeopardy, and we don't have a lot of time to turn it around. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's quite remarkable that there are so many people of all faiths and none who really are on board with what he has done. Mm -hmm. And what we, we need to do in the church is take that seriously, just as we would take any any document of the church's teaching on human life issues, on personal holiness or whatever it is, we should take this one seriously. What is something simple that every Catholic can do today to affirm their faith and to show their faith to the world? To, to live more simplistically. Hmm. I think we, call, we can all live a more simple life so that we begin to not have all of the toys that are out there, but use the available resources that we have that we don't spend on junk mm -hmm. to help other people. Mm -hmm. But I, I think we can make a conscious decision to say, no, I don't need that. The Pope has been amazing on Twitter and social media. What do you think of social media? And do you think it could be used as a force for good? I think it is a force for good. It can be used. It's also a force for a lot of 
difficult things as well. We see, uh, we saw it, I think, in, in our country, the way it was uh, used to uh, foment insurrection uh, in, in, in our country. But that's part of a free society, and you, you have to be willing to, uh, to put up with that. I think we're in our infancy in terms of how we're going to deal with uh, social media. Uh, we're, um, it's a new toy, and, and people can use it for good or ill. Mm -hmm. I think it has great potential for doing good. But on the other hand, I think uh, there have to be guidelines of what's permissible and what's not. Mm -hmm. You can't just, you can't make the internet so toxic that uh, it, it paralyzes the, uh, the political uh, life of the, of the country. And that's that's something we haven't figured out yet how to do that. Right. I think the the Pope has done a remarkable job of using this very much this new tool, as you say, yeah. Yeah. to really bring his message to the masses in a unique and innovative way. And um, yeah, he, he he's here. He's he's capturing a lot of young people, I think, by doing that. And he likes being with young people. Yeah. He lives at uh, Santa Marta at the house there. What he does is uh, every every week he has one day of lunch with all of the personnel, mm -hmm. with the workers. Mm -hmm. Once a week he mm -hmm. has a separate table in which he has the workers come and he eats at lunch with them. So he knows the value of connecting over a meal yeah. Yeah. and yeah, uses very, that. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you'd love to communicate or touch on? Well, you didn't talk about the abuse crisis in no, the church. No, I didn't. And being from Boston where, yep. you know, it was the place Epicenter. where it erupted, you know, yeah. where it erupted. Yeah. Um, I bring that up too because um, tomorrow I'll be doing the funeral for Jim Saratella. Mm -hmm. Jim Saratella was an attorney here in town who really um, helped Cardinal Bernadine in 1992 come up with a program not just to directly deal with these issues, but to make sure that we had a system in place that started with the victim and that we have a victim's assistance office. We've had that since then. To make sure that, um, as I've always said, if you put the child in the middle of the room, you'll get it right. That, forget about the, everything else. You focus on the victim or the, the child in the room, you'll get it right. And he was a man in which he uh, was quite revolutionary in his thinking uh, when, at a time when uh, the impulse was by many people in the hierarchy to uh, protect the institution, to circle the wagons, huh? to hide stuff, to avoid scandal, and all of us. He says, none of that matters. We have to remember, these are our kids. But do you think that that is the prevailing thought in the church right now? I think that, yes, it surely is much more. Uh, I mean, quite honestly, we're the only institution that cares for and educates kids mm -hmm. that have uh, a safe environment uh, policy, uh, clear background checks, Ed educating people, telling kids how to detect abuse that's there, mm -hmm. dealing publicly with any infractions, mm -hmm. removing people, putting a list of those who are have substan substantiated allegations mm -hmm. in public on the list. Here in Chicago, for instance, there was a story in the um, in the Tribune about how kids who are in the public school system have multiple abuse uh, allegations uh, against them, and yet. We don't know where that's going. I don't think you cannot look at the decline of uh, the amount of parishioners, the youth leaving the church, and not make a direct correlation oh, yes. with the sex abuse scandal. This has had an enormous impact. And it must make you sick. It does. It must make you truly sick as someone who loves the Catholic Church and wants to, and is a defender of the faith, to see that happen. Yeah. How do you reconcile that every day? Because I'm sure that's been an enormous challenge. Well, first of all, you make sure that we keep our promises. You have to be transparent with people when anything happens, mm -hmm. and we are. But you have to keep at it. You have to say, okay, um, while, while these cases are all in the past, for the most part, when you look at the the reports every year we, when we do an audit of what's happening. The number of cases has shrunk to nothing. One, one is bad enough, but in terms of a church, you know, of uh, uh, 70 million Catholics or whatever we are, this is something that we do have our arms around and kids are safe. And we have parents sending their kids to our schools mm -hmm. because they think it's safe. But once you're, once you're tagged with that, mm -hmm. it's hard to shake it.
Yes. And I and I. Do you I, think it can be overcome? I think so. We just have to we just have to keep at it, be very genuine in how we handle it. And when when you know this is why the Pope put in for the universal law of the church. If a bishop is negligent in carrying these cases, he's going to be removed. This came out of the summit uh, in 2019 that he had for all the bishops, uh, presidents of bishops conferences come for a full week. Uh, and I was a part of the organ organizing of that in which he came out of that and said, listen, I'm putting together a new law that if, if a bishop does not handle these things right, uh, he's going to go. And we did have already in the world some bishops removed for the mishandling. And mm -hmm. That's the only way it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You've you got to have some teeth to this. Right. It's the trust. Yeah, it's okay. the trust of the parishioner, and I'm sure it's been incredibly challenging over years. It is. Time. Rebuilding trust is hard once it's lost. Mm -hmm. If you don't deal with uh, the main actors who undermine that trust, then you're never going to get anywhere. Well, how do you take someone who's had that experience and bring them back to the faith? There are people, uh, when I talk to victims, there are people who, who do find it healing mm -hmm. to come back, to say that you're, we're sorry. Uh, I tell every time we have uh, accusation from the past, I always tell our attorneys, I said, make sure you tell them I will see them if they want to come and see me. Few do, but when they do, uh, it can be very healing for me as well as them. I think we just have to keep at it. Being present, being transparent, yeah. and, and, and hearing their story and letting it wash over you and, and saying sorry. Right, right. right. There's power in that. Um, you asked me at the very beginning, what was it kind of in my own family that um, uh, has um, shaped the way I approach uh, ministry? And um, I go back to uh, something, a story my grandmother told me. She was an immigrant, a five foot four uh, woman who spoke broken English. She uh, raised four children, two, my two uncles, my mother, who was the oldest one, and then the youngest daughter, Roseanne, was really um, quite handicapped physically and mentally, emotionally as well. And they raised her. And uh, she told me that uh, at one point as they grew older, the grandparents, that they couldn't handle her anymore. Roseanne was her name. She became belligerent, overweight. They didn't know how to bathe her. Um, and so they decided that they had to place her in a place, in some place that would be safer for her. Mm -hmm. And also, even if at great sacrifice to them financially, that would allow them to, to care for her um, that was in a way that was needed. Grandma worked in the parish rectory, sometimes as a part-time housekeeper, cook. She knew Monsignor who was there for 46 years as a pastor and decided out of respect, she'd go and tell him, you know. So my grandparents walked up the hill to church and visited with them and told them about Roseanne. And he looked at them and says, you cannot do this. You cannot abandon your child like this. This is wrong. Mm. They were crestfallen. They walked home silent. Finally, my grandfather says, well, mom, what are we gonna do? Mama, what are we gonna do? And uh, grandma said, well, tomorrow we're gonna pack up the car and we're gonna take Roseanne to the home. Well, my grandfather said, but what about what Monsignor said? And grandma said, Monsignor doesn't have to live with Roseanne. My grandmother told me that story a week after I was ordained a priest to let me know I should never do that to somebody. And that, that I have to listen to where people are yeah. and to try to understand their life. Empathy. Yeah. Deep so empathy. That, is, that, is, that, that always stuck with me. That yes. Here was a, she had a sixth grade education. Yes. But was wise enough to say, I don't want my grandson to treat people that way. Yeah, that's really interesting. This is why the Pope says, remember, Realities are greater than ideas. Realities are greater than ideas. Yes. So you have an idea in your mind of what should be. Yes. No, deal with the reality. Yes. That's 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 what we talk. How we began this conversation, talking about dogma in the head versus the yeah. heart. Yeah. You know, meet people yeah. where they are right. in that moment. Realities are greater than ideas. Yeah. It's that, a great line. It is a great line. It yeah. really is. Yeah. Well, this has been a delight. I'm so honored that we were able to do this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. 
to the loyal followers of this program. Cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.